Romans 12, 1 and 2. Wherefore, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Amen. Part of that sacrifice is a selfless, serving, loving marriage that reflects our Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel that he has delivered to us. Remember that we don't want to focus on our spouses. We want to focus on ourselves when we consider a few things about marriage. Remember that the most important thing you need is conviction and change, not new information. Remember, your example is greater than your words to your children. And a loving marriage will do more for your children than most anything that you could teach them verbally. In Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 26, last Lord's Day, I gave to you these words, My son, give me thine heart, and let thine eyes observe my ways. Rather than, my son, give me thine heart, let thine ears hear my words, This particular proverb says, let thine eyes observe my ways. A good parent is a parent that lives the truth, not a parent that just speaks the truth or a parent that takes the children to a Sunday school where they hear the truth. A good parent is one that lives the truth and they ought to be living the truth of a godly, functional, happy marriage. Marriage definitely impacts God's blessing on your life. Malachi chapter 2 says... That because the men of Israel were so selfish in pursuing multiple wives and other wives, that their Jewish wives that they had married when they were young were coming to the altar of God and covering it with their tears. Now I can read in my book, my Bible, where it says that God has everyone's tears in his bottle. And if a woman is crying because her husband is mistreating her, those tears are accumulating at her benefit and your expense. So we have a warning. First Peter 3, 7 would make the warning this way. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life. And why should we do all that, husbands? That your prayers be not hindered. Amen. If you are not loving your wife the way you should, and yet you drop to your knees to pray, the Lord is not going to hear your prayers as if He would, if you are loving your wife, if you are, if you do not have a godly, loving marriage, then according to Ephesians 4.30, you have grieved the Holy Spirit of God. With the Holy Spirit of God grieved in your life, you have a powerless Christian life. According to three verses before that, Ephesians 4.27, you give place to the devil. So you have the influence of the devil in your life, and all of this can be traced back to a marriage that isn't pleasing in the sight of the Lord. It's humility and zeal we all need. It's not new information. There's no secret in the Bible. There's no secret that can be delivered to you or to me to make us a better husband or a better wife. It's the humility to tremble before God's Word, the conviction by the Holy Spirit, and the commitment to make changes that would be more in line with what the Bible describes as a good marriage than the one we may have had even as late as this morning. Christians ought to have the best marriages. After all, it's our God that invented marriage. It's our God that wrote a manual about it. And it's our God that has blessed us with His presence in our hearts by His Spirit. He commands us to have good marriages 
in the Bible, and you'll give an account in the day of judgment how you have treated your spouse. You may hide in your bedroom, and you may hide behind closed doors, and you may hide in your sullen quietness, but all of that will be brought out at the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. The future of your family depends on how you have a marriage before them. The first point we looked at last time was God is sovereign in picking our spouses. For His glory and for countless factors, the spouse that you are married to is because God chose it that way in His government of the world. And there's profit in it for you and glory for Him. We trust God for our parental choices. And you didn't have any involvement in that. How much more should we trust God for our marital choices or his marital choice for us, because you did have a choice in that matter. If we trust God in the one where we were excluded, how much more should we trust God in the one where we were included in making that choice? Therefore, the spouse that you are married to is the one that God chose out of the 6.8 billion people that are on planet Earth for you to love and to treat the way the Bible describes. The most important, one of the most important things, not the most important, but one of the most important things that we went over last time was that every wife and every husband should remember the roles that God gave them. We are old-fashioned Neanderthal cavemen in the eyes of the world, but all we want to be are Bible Christians, and all we hope to be are Bible Christians. The Bible tells us how wives should obey, love, and reverence and submit to their husbands. The Bible tells us that husbands ought to love and lead and cherish and nourish their wives. And so we need to submit to those roles. Children see. Children remember. Especially in a church where those children hear what the marriage ought to look like. This is the last place on earth where you want to bring your children if you're not going to have a godly marriage at home. Because they're going to be turned to verses in the Bible... And they're going to hear descriptions and explanations of how a godly husband and a godly wife should get along with each other. Then they're going to go home and they're going to sense, feel, see, and hear that mommy and daddy are not really in love with each other. That they yell at each other. That they're unhappy with each other. That they're moody about each other. That they're bitter with each other. Just like the pastor preached against. And so you undermine their whole religion. You shatter their faith. You ruin them for life without the grace of God to save them. We also thought about where children fit in. Children are a secondary, temporal, less important part of your life than your spouse. God made Eve for Adam. God God did not make Eve for Cain, for Abel, for Seth. As, more, as much as he made Eve for Adam. It was not good for the man to be alone. Therefore, I will make him and help meet for him. It wasn't that Adam had four children sitting around the table. And every night before they ate supper, they had a prayer. Would God send us a mother? No, Adam needed a wife. And that's what the woman was created for. And you should never let your children interfere with your love of your husband. You should be doting more on your husband than you should be doting on your children. It's always easier to dote on your children than it is your husband. 
But that's why it becomes a hard thing to do to please God. And while we're on children distracting wives from their marital duties, let's remember that husbands can often get distracted by their jobs. They become slaves to their jobs where they don't have the time nor the emotion nor the energy nor the creativity to be the loving husbands that they ought to be for their wives. That is why in the Bible, as a, as a principle and a rule for the Old Testament and an indicator for us, husbands were not to be charged with business for one year, nor were they to go to war for one year. Because they were to stay at home and cheer up the wives that they had taken. That is Deuteronomy 24.5. And there's wisdom in that, meaning that a husband should not let business hurt his marriage. A husband should not let his business or his job cause his wife to lose her cheer. For the first year, they were commanded to cheer up their wives. And the principle there is important enough for us to see that it would have lasting value. Let's look at a few new points and go home. Communication. The importance of communication. The Bible tells us that if you're a friend of someone, then you're very open with them about what you're thinking. Jesus said in John chapter 15 that I call you my friends. He said that to his apostles. I call you my friends because I tell you everything I'm going to do. I have called you servants, but I no longer call you servants because I tell you everything I'm going to do. A husband and a wife are the closest of friends. It is the companion that fulfills a man. According to Genesis chapter 2, that's why Eve was created. Two are better than one for four reasons in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. But how are these two going to get along if they don't communicate? And one of the biggest problems in marriage is there isn't enough talking. You know, there are certain subjects that are sort of taboo for conversation. We don't want to deal with that because we're both unhappy, so let's just ignore it and try to go on with the same last name and the same address and hope that everything works out in the end. But we ought to be open and communicating about everything. Everything. How can you ever learn to, how can you ever learn to love another person unless they are open enough to express what they need to be loved and you are open enough with your ears to hear what they said? Communication is important in the Word of God. The Bible puts it this way. How can two walk together except they be agreed? And we understand how can you be agreed unless you talk things out and come to agreement. On everything that's important, it's the Word of God. On everything that's less important, it's a matter of liberty. And the wife should generally follow her husband. But a loving husband is going to make sure that some of the matters of liberty in his household are according to his wife. Because that's how you cherish a wife by making some of her desires important in your marriage. Do you know how to listen? Listen, what we want in a few minutes before we go home is this. God wants us to have godly marriages. The gospel demands that we have godly marriages. Our children are watching our marriages to see how godly they are and how much they conform to the Bible. Our prayers will be hindered if we don't have godly marriages. What we want to do is just think for a few minutes about some areas in which we can improve so that when we go out of here, our marriages are better than when we arrived. We need conviction, we need zeal, and we need commitment to change. You don't need new information. You need to humble yourself right now and say, Lord, show me something right now and give me the strength right now that when I walk out of this place in a few minutes, I will be a better husband or I will be a better wife for your glory, for the benefit and the profit and pleasure of my spouse, for the defense of the truth, For the adorning of the gospel of God. 
for the silencing of the devil and the skeptics that are against opposite-sex marriages in our generation, may we magnify Bible marriage by the way we live. And so when I mention communication, you don't need a whole bunch of information about communication. All you need to do is, do I talk to my wife or do I talk to my husband as much as I, as I should? And, and do I listen well? Wives often hold their thoughts in to pretend that they are submissive or they don't want to bother their husband or they want to avoid his anger for telling him that he's not God's gift to womanhood. You know, for a, for a variety of reasons, women hold things in. We've been over that before at couples retreats. Wife, something's bothering you. What's wrong? Here's the sweet answer that's a lie. Nothing. Everything's fine. Why in the world would the wife say that? She would say that because she wants to be submissive. She would say that because she knows what's bothering her is so small that it's a shame to even mention it. She would say that because she doesn't want to suffer his wrath. She, do, she doesn't say it because she doesn't want there to be a disagreement. But for all those reasons, she doesn't say it. But think about the conversation that just took place. The reason the husband asked her what is wrong is because she's already given it away that something is wrong or he wouldn't have asked. Therefore, since he asked, it's the perfect opportunity to say, since you asked, and then go ahead and say, and don't ask me for illustrations because the one that's on the tip of my tongue doesn't need to be said. But there it is. Are you a good listener? Do you speak the truth? Wife, when your husband asks you, he really does want to know. You're not being submissive when you refuse to say something to him. In fact, you're being rebellious because he just asked you what is wrong. When you say nothing, you're a liar and a rebel. And you are not working to the benefit of your marriage. Say something. Tell him. He's opened himself up. Go ahead and use that opportunity. If there's no communication in your marriage or there's limited communication, it's going to lead to confusion because you really don't know each other, it's going to lead to distance between the two of you, because how can two walk together except they be agreed? It's going to lead to hurt, because there's going to be misunderstanding on why some things are done. It's going to lead to bitterness, because offenses aren't dealt with properly. It's going to lead to loneliness and vulnerability, because you don't have good communication. Then you're going to meet somebody outside of your marriage that communicates a whole lot better than your spouse, and bye-bye, you're falling into temptation that's horrible and leads to damnable sin. A heinous sin, according to the Word of God. All because communication wasn't taken care of at home. Husbands often hold their thoughts in to look like strong men that don't have any problems. They want to be the strong, silent type. Where is that found in the Bible? That's a creation of Hollywood. There's nothing, there's nothing glorious, profitable, or useful about the strong, silent type. If you're strong, why don't you say something strong? If you're strong, why don't you teach your children to be strong? If you're strong, why don't you help me be strong? Strong and silent? The Bible says that a righteous man is a tree of life to everyone around him. His tongue is a tree of life. He's feeding others to help make them strong. Husbands hold their thoughts in to look like strong men, or they want to save domestic tranquility from a proud, rebellious, and difficult wife that really can't take any criticism. (laughs) So, wives... When your husband needs to say something or you ask him what's wrong, you better have your bulletproof vest on. When you say what's wrong, because what's wrong is probably something you did. So if you're going to ask the question, be ready for the answer. And don't criticize him. Show your reverence and your submission when he gives you an answer. 
he's telling you something that's wrong. And he may use veiled language because he doesn't really want to hit you too hard. So you've got to be looking for it. Are you smart enough to know that your spouse cannot tell you the whole truth and nothing but the truth? Have you all figured that out? I mean, there's some of you that, that do a fine job, I'm sure, and that this doesn't apply to. But ordinarily, your spouse doesn't tell you the whole truth and nothing but the truth because they want to save you from suicidal thoughts. So, what do we do in a situation like that where our spouse doesn't tell us everything? Figure it out yourself by comparing yourself to the Bible, yourself to good spouses, and yourself to the things you do know about your spouse. They're never going to tell you the whole truth. That's a general rule. There are exceptions. It depends on how mad they are. <laughs> then, then, they, then they tell you the whole truth and beyond the truth. And you need to remember that as well. But communication... It's an important part of marriage because communication is an important part of all relationships. Right. And if there, if there has ever been a relationship that needs to talk about everything, there should never be a disagreement about how a child's treated in the home. There should never be a disagreement about discipline. Everything should be talked about. Any disappointments in bed are because there hasn't been enough communication. The only reason there can be a disappointment is because one of the spouses wants it a different way than they're getting it. But if that spouse that's not getting it the way they want it doesn't tell the spouse that's giving it, then it's never going to improve, and you're going to be married to a bumbling, fumbling idiot the rest of your life. And there's bumbling and fumbling idiots of both sexes. So it's got to be by communication. Lord, thank you for communicating clearly to us. Do you know how clearly he's communicated to us? There's 31,101 verses, and it's in writing. Right. We know exactly what he wants for us, and he said that that is what a friend does. It, he communicates very openly. Do you talk about everything? You know, to get rid of all past offenses saves you from bitterness. If you talk about every time there's an offense and you resolve it, then bitterness can't occur in that marriage because bitterness is an unresolved offense. Bitterness is something that was not dealt with and it accumulates in the heart. The, the only communication you should ever have about your spouse is to your spouse unless you've exhausted every possibility with your spouse. And the only reason you would ever tell anyone else about your marriage is because you want to be a better spouse. There is no profit in telling someone else about how bad your spouse is. Why don't you go to others and ask them how you can be a better spouse? That is why we, that's talking about your marriage outside of your marriage. Very quickly, what does the Bible have to say about sex? A lot. God created the man and the woman naked in the Garden of Eden, and they were not ashamed until they ate the fruit off the tree that God had prohibited. God designed it, and God knows it best, and God told us about its management in the Bible. Sex is not an invention of Hollywood. Sex is following along behind Christianity, trying to get a little bit of the good thing that God gave to His people. They've corrupted it and messed it up so badly, they've got the most dysfunctional sexual lives of anybody on the planet. They divorce. They're under the influence of drugs. They defend sodomy. They're confused about sex. Our God created it, and He created it good in the beginning. So first of all, our God created it. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25. He designed it. He knows it best when he brought the naked woman to the naked man, introduced the two of them to each other. And that was Adam and Eve, our first parents. 
He illustrated it for us in the Song of Solomon. You can go to the Song of Solomon where there are eight chapters. And it doesn't matter whether for the moment you want to make that a picture of Jesus Christ's love for his church or if you want to make it a true romantic story between a man and a lover and his wife. It doesn't matter for the moment. The point is, in those eight chapters, he illustrates two people that are hot for each other and love each other and love each other's bodies and love touching each other and love praising each other and love flattering each other for the mutual benefit that they get. It's a wonderful eight chapters and it's in the Word of God. We have the most precious library of 66 books that God has given us. When was the last time you read the Song of Solomon and asked yourself, do I treat my spouse the way that these two treat each other. Oh, that's a high standard. But it's found in a book of the Bible. God honors sex. In Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. God honors sex. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. All in one verse. So God created it, God illustrated it, and God honored it. Now look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Because God commanded it. God commands sex. And God commands frequent sex. And God commands the kind of sex that your spouse wants. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is nothing new. You've heard this many times before. Especially the couples that have been to couples retreats. All we want is, Lord, speak to me from your word. I don't communicate very well with my spouse. Our sexual relationship is not as good as it should be according to the verses that we're about to have read to us. Help me walk out of this assembly and be a better husband or a better wife. That's the goal. 1 Corinthians 7. Now, verse 1. Now concerning the things whereof he wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, okay, what's that verse there for? That verse is there because Paul was single and could serve the Lord better by being single. That verse is there because according to verse 26 of this chapter, there was a present distress in Corinth where it was better not to marry than to marry. And that's what he means by verse 1 when he says not to touch. After the right hand of fellowship that we just had with Sylvia, if that first verse means you shouldn't touch a woman, wow, are we in trouble as a church. What it means is don't get married. Third reason is that... A single person can, can serve the Lord better than a married person. And all of these three he elaborates on if you read the whole chapter. Because right. what he's talking about is marriage. He's not talking about shaking hands with a woman. That it's not good for a man to touch a woman. He's talking about marriage. Now concerning the things whereof he wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication... Let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. This is God's ordinary way of doing things, even when there's a present distress. The, apostles Paul, the Apostle Paul's life was exemplary of a Christian life being a single man, and that you can attend upon the things of the Lord better being single, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, because there's great temptation raised when you're single, because the sex drive is one of the strongest drives we have. And if you're single and you're not married, you can't find any relief for it. The relief that you can find is not satisfying relief. So you're troubled. You're frustrated. So we have this verse in the Bible. So we come to the third verse. Not only should you get married, but you should use that marriage. And the marriage bed. Verse 3. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. That's what we call a euphemism. 
A euphemism is when God the Holy Spirit, or we, in our ordinary conversation, use gentle, polite words to describe something that might be considered less than that if it was just plainly said. What is being plainly said here, underneath the euphemism, is let the husband love his wife sexually in the way that she wants to be loved, when she wants it, where she wants it, and as often as she wants it. That's exactly what that is saying. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. Benevolence is love and loving giving. And due is what the wife needs so that she won't commit the fornication that is mentioned in verse 2 because she'll be a completely satisfied woman. Let the husband... And look at it comes first. Was the woman made for the man? Absolutely. But when it comes to 1 Corinthians 7.3, the husband is to take care of his wife first. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. What she needs sexually. And likewise, also, the wife unto the husband. Every wife should be thinking, what does my husband like the most? Where does he like it? When does he like it? And how often does he like it? That's what the verse is teaching. Our God created it. Our God illustrated it. Our God honored it. And our God commanded it right here. So, if you are not having the best sex that you are capable of having, as often as your spouse wants it, where they want it, when they want it, how they want it, you're not fulfilling the due benevolence that's described here in the fourth verse. Paul's going to elaborate further in verse 4. The wife hath not power of her own body. That means a wife does not have the authority to give or to withhold her body from satisfying her husband. Because it's the husband that has the authority of the wife's body. First half of verse 4. The wife does not have power or authority over her own body, but the husband has that power or authority of her body. He has a right to whatever he wants from that body. Ordinarily, in things that can be justified before the God of heaven. If you need help on that, see me at any time. And likewise, also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. A husband can't lay in bed and say, listen, I've worked hard, and this woman was made for me, and I know she'd like to make love tonight, but I'm just too tired, and because I'm the husband, I can defraud her, and it's really not as bad as when she defrauds me. Wrong. Because look at what the text says. Likewise, also the husband, same, likewise, also, do those words help you? Meaning it's the same rule for both spouses. Likewise, also, the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. The wife has the authority and the right. That, let me, I'm glad I added that word there. The word power is authority and right. The wife does not have the authority and the right to withhold her body from her husband. The husband doesn't have the authority or the right to withhold his body from his wife. But they're supposed to give to each other to give due benevolence. So both are totally happy in their marriage. Verse 5, defraud ye not one the other. What does defraud mean? It means to give less than verses 3 and 4 are describing. It means to give less than due benevolence. It means to give less than what your spouse wants. It means to give less in a frequency. It means to give less in creativity. It means to give less in passion. It means to give less in location. It means to give less in timing. You're not giving enough, so you're defrauding your spouse. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again, that Satan tempts you not for your 
incontinency. If we pull out the fasting and prayer statement, here's what it sounds like. Defraud ye not one the other, that Satan tempts you not for your incontinency. Because the issue is fornication from verse 2. If you don't have a great sexual relationship for both spouses, Satan is going to tempt you for your incontinency. You're going to be unable to resist the temptation he brings and you'll commit fornication. So marriage has rules upon it about frequency and it's the other spouse that determines how frequently you have sex because you don't have the authority or the right to your body. Your spouse has it. God protects it. That's enough said. You should be able to figure that out. Now all you got to do is ask the holy before the holy God of heaven. Ask yourself, am I the Song of Solomon's great lover? Am I Solomon's in a, as a lover to my wife? Am I the Shulamite to my husband? Do I fulfill these verses? Do I consciously, carefully make sure that we have sex in the way, in the timing, in the location, with the frequency that my spouse wants it. If not, you have failed as a spouse in this matter. You say, well, I'm not sure what my spouse wants. I'll bet you are. You just don't want to admit it because then you're condemned. But if you're not, go home and ask them. On the way home, it could be an interesting conversation. It could be a combination of Romans and what do you really want, honey? When do you want it? You know, you heard, he, he used all those W's for context when he was talking about Romans. Now he's using all those W's for marriage. When, where, what, and how often? It's got a W at the end. There we are. Now God protects it. And God protects it with a vengeance. Women, you owe your entire body and soul to your husband. All the rules of the scriptures about the husband not looking on a woman to lust after her apply to a woman as well. Your mind should never wander anywhere. You are under a greater obligation than he is. Though he's under a a holy obligation I'm going to get to in a moment. God was so serious about a woman being loyal to her husband that in Numbers chapter 5, the test of jealousy is given. If a husband had to be out of town on business when he got home, if he had the least reason or suspicion to think that his wife might be playing around on him, he did not have to have any evidence whatsoever. The Bible is very clear in Numbers chapter 5. All he has to do is have a fear. He could take his wife down to the priest for the test of jealousy. The priest would swear that woman in the name of the Lord, and he would hand her a little potion to drink. If she had been playing around on her husband, she would start rotting right in her crotch on the spot, and she would die. Numbers chapter 5, it is called the test of jealousy because it was to protect husbands who were jealous and they had to be away from their home and they wondered if their wife was playing around on them. You didn't have to hire a private investigator. You just took her to the priest. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if she was innocent and he had abused her, I mean, he had taken her down there and psychologically and emotionally, that would be a horrible thing for a woman to go through. Do you know what happened? She'd conceive seed that night and have a child. And the Lord would bless her that way. It's in Numbers chapter 5. Now, husbands, Proverbs 5.19 says this, Let your wife be unto you as a loving hind and pleasant roe, a playful little pet deer. A playful little pet deer. Let her be as the loving hind and pleasant roe. 
Let her breast satisfy thee at all times, and be thou ravished always with her love. Proverbs 5.19. Those are imperative verbs telling husbands how they should look at their wives. Meaning, there is no room for pornography in a man's life because you're looking at another woman's breast because you're not satisfied with your wife's breast. Proverbs 5.19 condemns it. You don't fantasize about making love to anyone else because you are ravished by your wife making love to you. Proverbs 5.19. You treat her delicately and you cherish her, like Ephesians 5 teaches, because she's like a pleasant row, a pleasant hind and uh, a pleasant row. Let her be as the loving hind and pleasant row. See, if I can't say a verse in order, I get very confused. Let her be as the loving hind and pleasant row, a friendly little pet female deer. To be treated delicately. Tenderly, pampered, protected, and loved. Three clauses, one verse, from a man who had a thousand women, by the inspiration of God, condemns men thinking anywhere else but with their wife. There's no place or profit for pornography, romantic novels, or movies of the worldly sort that would lead either husband or wife to wish he was married to anyone differently than the one God's already given either by physical characteristics or personality traits. To fulfill these verses about sex, you need to talk about your sexual, your sexual relationship and to make it conform to the Word of God. Brethren, you want something more important than a good sexual relationship in a marriage? I'll tell you something that's good, and it's a good relationship with the God of heaven so that you're walking with Him. If you're walking with God, you're going to be the best spouse. You knew this point was coming, and if you didn't think it was coming, then I have failed you as your pastor, or your memory is failing you. The most important thing that I can ever tell you about your marriage, if you want the best marriage possible, it is for you to be walking with God and for you to help your spouse walk close to God. If you are both down here on the bottom two corners of a triangle, and you are helping each other get closer to God and God is up above, the closer you two get to God, the closer you're going to get to each other. It's that simple. When you are close to God, you are full of the Holy Spirit of God, and the Holy Spirit bears fruit in your life by supernatural power to be loving, joyful. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness. Those are words that make a marriage great. And where do they come from? They come from the Spirit of God. And how do we get them in our marriages? By walking close to God. This is the most important thing. The closer you are to God, the closer you'll be to your spouse. The closer you are to God, the more beautiful your wife is. The closer you are to God, the more charming your husband is. The closer you are to God, the easier you can forgive your spouse. Because God's forgiven you and you're full of His forgiveness and you're just looking around for somebody to forgive. And guess what? Your spouse is going to give you an opportunity hourly. It's just the way it is. Two sinners married, living with each other inside the same walls. You you better be full of forgiveness. If you're walking with God, it's going to be easy to do that. If you slip here, God's going to blow against you. God's going to blow against you intentionally, and you will lose the power of the Holy Spirit, and you'll give place to the devil. The devil will bring bring bitterness into your heart, and bitterness into your marriage, and it's going to be a wreck. Kids will see it, smell it, know it. You're going to be a disgrace to the world. And so the Bible says that a good marriage stops men's mouths from blaspheming the Word of God. The Word of God is blasphemed when two Christians who say they practice the Bible don't have a great marriage. Lord, save us from such a thing. 
you will lose spiritual power. The devil will not be resisted in your life if you are not walking close to the Lord. You should be praying about your marriage with yourself. You should be praying about your marriage with your spouse. You can be reading the Song of Solomon. You should be practicing the definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13 because that's God's definition of love. 1 Timothy 6.6 Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now that's true of financial matters because that's the context. That short little sentence is powerful. Godliness, living a godly life, plus contentment with the things God has given you equals great gain. That is success. But it really works when it comes to marriage. Godliness plus contentment with your wife equals great gain. Those are going to be the happiest people married because they have taken godliness and contentment with each other. We're always going to disappoint each other because we're sinners. The best marriage that's ever taken place on earth is two sinners marrying. And when two sinners marry, there's going to be disappointments. But if you choose to be content and you add godliness to it, that is the formula for a successful marriage. If the godliness starts to fail because you become carnally minded, you lose your great gain. If you lose contentment because you're playing around with romance novels, Hollywood movies, or pornography, you're going to lose. Because you're not content, you're no longer godly. If you don't have godliness and you don't have contentment, what do you have? A bunch of discontentment and bitterness, unhappiness, disappointment and frustration with life. Right. We don't, Christians don't have to live that way at all. Ecclesiastes 9 tells me that Christians don't have to live that way at all. Amen. Rejoice with a wife whom thou lovest all the days of thy life, for this is thy portion that God hath given thee in thy vanity under the sun. God doesn't want us to live that way. Do you know the five inputs and how to manage them? Daily reading of the Word of God to feed your soul because man does not live by bread alone but by every word of God. Number two, praying every day because prayer is the language of the soul and that's how you communicate with God is by prayer. Three, you have godly friends that influence you to godliness. Four, you listen to God-glorifying Christian music that lifts and raises your spirit spiritually. And five... You avoid movies and other influences and media that tear you down and present the world's lifestyle instead of God's lifestyle. If you don't manage those five, your marriage will not be what it could be and should be, and you'll give account of it to the Lord. What do we do when we know we've messed up? Oh, it's so easy. It's so wonderful. We confess our sins to to our blessed Father in heaven, and He forgives us because He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And every one of us can be saying, I can do better in this particular area, or I can do better in all the areas that you've mentioned. The first thing we do is we confess it to God, then we confess it to our spouse, if there needs to be any confession there, and we make a renewed effort to do the first works. Let me summarize it again from Revelation chapter 2. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus Christ rebuked the church at Ephesus because they had lost their first love. Paul had been their pastor, and he had been in Ephesus for two years. It's described in Acts chapter 20. And they loved the Lord Jesus Christ. They brought their books of witchcraft and sorcery and burned them, and the price was 50,000 pieces of silver. They loved the Lord. But when Jesus addressed that church a few years later in Revelation chapter 2, he said, I have somewhat against thee. You have lost your first love. Now, that, that's a husband and a wife. The church is the wife, Jesus is the husband, and he's confronting the wife. You've lost your first love. That's, that's up close and personal. 
You've lost your first love. You're not loving me the way you used to. But there's a three-step process to getting it back with the Lord. And the same three-step process works in getting it back with your spouse. Three things. Jesus Christ told that church. Remember from whence thou art fallen. Go back and reflect on what it used to be like between you and me, the Lord and the church at Ephesus. Remember from whence thou art fallen. Do you remember what it used to be like? You were reading your Bible this many minutes a day with this much joy every day. You were praying this many minutes a day with great joy. You love being in the assembly of God. You love the preaching of God's Word. You love... You would walk outside and just tell me that you love me. But this is Jesus Christ addressing His church. Remember from whence thou art fallen. You had a hunger for the Word of God. You had a hunger and a craving for righteousness. Remember from whence thou art fallen... Repent, because you let it slip. Because Jesus Christ doesn't take partial love, lukewarm love, or second love. Repent for not giving me your best. Third, do the first works. Go back and do those things that you did in the beginning. Renew your zeal for my word. Renew your zeal for prayer. Renew your zeal for other brothers and sisters in Christ. Applying it to marriage, remember from whence thou art fallen. Remember the excitement, the zeal, the romance, the power, the memories, the thoughts, the words, the excitement, the smiles, the the care that you put into your hair, the care that you put into your makeup, the care that you put into buying flowers for the girl that was putting care into her hair and her makeup. Remember from whence thou art fallen. Remember all those things. We let things slip, don't we? We're pitiful. We're pitiful with the Lord and we're pitiful with one another. Remember from whence thou art fallen. Repent. I'm wrong. I shouldn't have let it slip. I shouldn't let it slip with the Lord and I shouldn't let it slip with my spouse. Three, do the first works. Take her out. Get her flowers. Write him a note. Tell him something you haven't told him in a long time. Do the first works. This is the word of the Lord. The issue is not more knowledge. The issue is not something new. The issue is this. Will you humble yourself before the Word of God, for the glory of God, the salvation of your children, the defense of the faith, the happiness of your spouse, and will, and for God's blessing in your life, love your spouse better this afternoon and tomorrow than you did yesterday and this morning? It's a choice we all make right now. There's a choice that you can make. You have a hard heart. You're so full of bitterness and hatred that you'll never be able to love anyone. And so you're going to go to your grave, a man filled with hate and bitterness. Wait till you meet the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Or you can say it was a simple message. There was nothing new, but I don't need anything new. I'm failing on the things I already knew. Therefore, I'm going to go home. I'm going to be a better spouse today based on the reminders that the pastor gave us. Are you good at saying I'm sorry? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, If you're coming to my altar... And you remember that anyone has ought against thee, drop your gift. Drop your gift and go run. Make it right with that person. Then come back and offer me your gift. Are you good at saying I'm sorry? Because if you're not good at saying you're sorry for what you've done in defrauding your spouse in whatever way, then the Lord's not going to receive your gift. If Matthew 5, 21 through 26 works for other people outside of your marriage, How much should it work for the one in your marriage? That's Matthew 5. Are you good at saying, forget it? You know, when someone comes to you and says, will you forgive me? Are you good at saying, forget it? 
If it works good for others, Proverbs 19.11, the discretion of a man deferreth his anger, and it is his glory to pass over transgression. If there's anyone that we should glory in passing over their transgressions, it should be our spouse. They've given us their lives. We're together in the Lord. We have many blessings. Brethren, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Christians ought to have the best marriages. Today's the first day of the rest of your life. You cannot redo your marriage on your deathbed, but you can redo it right now. And may the Lord bless us to do